let's just make sure that the information we put in front of that shift supervisor, you know, where it's two o'clock in the morning and the pump is broken and the gal or, or guy just needs to know what's the best decision for me to make today to keep everyone safe, you know, keep my customers happy, keep my boss happy. How, how can we empower that person to make better decisions in that role? And that is a challenge that I really hope my peers in manu- the manufacturing technology sector can embrace is, is that we're doing this, you know, t- to help the people on the floor, wearing the hard hat, wearing the steel-toed shoes. How can we help that person be more effective in their role? And it doesn't take, you know, generative AI to, to do that. We, we, can, we can use much more straightforward approaches, but we can build those systems with that person and their interests in mind. Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill cheesy humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women with errors in their backs who go through hell to achieve their goals. They'll go through anything to make it. They bathe in hell and high water, a cut above. They're intolerant to mediocrity, the status quo, and yet they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. This is Disruption Interruption. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. This show is sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest is disrupting the manufacturing industry. He's a solution seeker, and his superpower is making difficult things work well. He's got decades of operations consulting experience, followed by a decade of enterprise SaaS experience. I think he started when he was 10. (laughs) His specialties are business growth and transformation and buttermilk pancakes. We're here talking to him today because there are major inefficiencies created for manufacturers by data platforms and asset analytics software that are traditionally built by data scientists with no real familiarity with actual operations. What? That seems so counterintuitive, right? Well, we're going to find out all about it. Coming to us live from Boston, please welcome our disruptor, CEO of Chartwell Digital, Ryan Hale. Awesome. Thanks. Nice to be here with you, KJ. Appreciate it. Yes, I appreciate you. I am so looking forward to this. You know, my COO, her background is in manufacturing. What? People look to manufacturing for like, great efficiencies and operations and so forth. So I am super interested in delving into what is the status quo, really. But before we do that, I want you to tell our audience, what is your fundamental ingredient for disruptive innovation? Awesome. I I think it all starts with a fundamental belief that more is possible. And when you look at any system, any process, any piece of technology, you know, that we have yet to see the, the best that it will become. And I think if people can approach these situations with with a growth mindset and a curiosity to sort of challenge the way things have been done in the past and the, the levels that we've achieved in the past with an interest and a curiosity of, you know, what would it take? You know, what would have to change for us to do a little better tomorrow than we did yesterday? That That's really at the core of it. And um, sometimes that can be received in a way that isn't always positive. You know, I, I can certainly remember being told by somebody in a, in a factory that they had shoes older than me. 
And therefore they had, you know, I didn't have the right to, to ask the, these questions and sort of challenge in a way. So there's certainly a way to ask those questions that's respectful of what's come before and acknowledges the, you know, the efforts that people have put in to, to get where we are today. But I think you have to approach every situation just with a fundamental belief that we can do better and let's just discover how. I love that. You young whippersnapper, you. Wow, that's right. <laughs> Pissing off the establishment. Yeah, not, not anymore, but sure. <laughs> no. Well, and it is true. I mean, challenging the status quo and asking those questions and always looking at how things can be done better does tend to ruffle feathers, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure those people before us came in and did the same thing. They had to but- to make things better, right? Like this is the natural evolution. Tell me what is like the evolution of manufacturing and where did that, well, there was innovation, obviously, in manufacturing, but where did it stop? Where did it become good enough? Where did it become the status quo? When I look at at the industry, I think, you know, we've obviously had surges over the past, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 years, you know, breakthroughs in, in technology. You know, you can look at the way introducing automation, not in the chat GPT way, but in the sort of original way of, of providing tools and, and equipment that can automate manual work, right? That was sort of the origin of, of helping humans work more productively, work more safely. I think we, we can't overestimate the importance of, of having, you know, safety built into our, our manufacturing processes and systems, environmental safety, personal safety, everything that we need. You know, we saw we saw these sort of S curves of, of innovation as new technology becomes adopted and then becomes commoditized, and then we wait for this next big breakthrough. And I, I think it, as I look at you know kind of what's unfolded in the past few years, manufacturing isn't sexy, right? It doesn't attract the the amount of investment that we see from either private equity, venture capitalists, sort of at, at large. Obviously, there's specialist funds that that's all they drew. So I'm, I'm sure there's somebody listening today who's thinking, oh, come on, Ryan, don't forget about me, but Yes, by and large, manufacturing is not not a sexy industry. In in many cases, people didn't realize the importance and the interconnectedness of our supply chain until the pandemic, when we couldn't, you know, the shelves were bare, and the, and the things that we that we touch in our lives every every day, the physical goods that we use, we realize how how critical those manufacturing and, and supply chain assets are to get to us. So, you know, I, I think today we're again, I'm an optimist. I think we're in the early innings. I think that the adoption of technology in the manufacturing sector is so very early. I think the level of investments by traditional investors is still relatively low compared to the amount of value that the sector can provide to our our society. And I think we need to make manufacturing sort of a chosen destination for young talent, right? People come out of their degree programs or trade school or wherever wherever they're getting their education. You know, what can we do to attract the, the best and brightest minds into improving our our manufacturing sector rather than you know crypto or whatever the the flashy thing is that's coming up soon. So I think we saw a big opportunity there. And I think as I look at working with manufacturing companies, they don't need neural networks of of generative AI to make the business operate better, right? We're talking about relatively basic improvements in access to data, understanding how to interpret data, understanding how to present users, not just with numbers and charts, but with insights and recommended actions that can really empower people at all levels of, of a manufacturing organization to, to take action on that data and use it to, to make their jobs easier and to make their business perform better. Yeah, I, I really love that. I love all of those points. And I want to comment on a few of them. You did mention the catalyst of the pandemic. 
people didn't realize how important these manufacturers were on the supply chain until it came to the point where we didn't have toilet paper. Yeah. Right. And that was a really very real issue. And people started to recognize that. I will say we did a whole series of stories for Fox News. You know, we work with major media channels, CNN, Fox, all the top tier. But The major stories were on women coming back into the workforce. And Mm -hmm. I'll tell you about, you know, how this relates to manufacturing, because when we interviewed women in manufacturing and the workforce there, they were overworked during the pandemic. They didn't get cut from the pandemic, right? Because there were so many inefficiencies that they really were like overextended, right? And, you know, one of my contacts who I forget what part of manufacturing she's in, like what industry of manufacturing. She's like, those are the bigger stories that need to be told. Right. And it really went down to the limitations or the inefficiencies right now in manufacturing capacity that ultimately fix the end user, not just doing what you're doing to improve performance, but how does that ultimately affect the people that work in manufacturing and also like the end user? And you told me something really very interesting when I first met you, that every factory in America is operating at 50% capacity. Not every, but the majority. That's a bit general. <laughs> like, sure. But tell me about that. Because they're yeah. producing cereal, tissues, diapers, right? Yeah, I, I think you know, 50% is a, is a conveniently round number. But I, I think the point there is that there is, you could almost imagine that there's a hidden factory inside every factory we've already built, right? When, when we think about what it takes to run equipment, every piece of equipment, you can think about it kind of like a cube, right? On, on one dimension, you've got the, the speed at which it's running. You know, the other dimension is, is how many hours a day is it, is it operating? And then the third dimension is the quality of whatever it makes, right? How much of that stuff is, is sort of, you know, converted, raw material converted into, into finished goods, right? How close to 100%. So what are the three points again? The speed, the operating hours, and okay. then the, the quality that it runs, right? And so, okay. you know, that that's sort of a traditional um, equation. You know, some people call it OEE, overall equipment effectiveness. There's lots of different names for that. But re- regardless of which uh, which religion you follow in, in continuous improvement, we're all talking about the same thing, right? Make sure the machine runs as fast as it can for as many hours a day and, and produces high quality stuff, right? And and if we think about that theoretical view if, if every piece of equipment that a company invests in could operate, you know, 24 hours a day at maximum speed at 100% perfect quality, that's a huge amount of capacity. And we all know in, in reality that it's not, it's not practical to, to run at that speed. You know, the analogy that a lot of people say is, well, you wouldn't drive your car, you know, 150 miles an hour down the highway. <laughs> sure. Um, but if I got paid by the mile, I might think about ways you know, to, to make sure that when I stop for gas, it takes as, as little time as possible. Maybe I could convert to, to batteries so I don't have to stop for gas any, anymore, right? A- anyway, so, so we, we can think about, if you take that theoretical view of maximum run speed, maximum availability, maximum quality, you can suddenly see how the overinvestment in equipment to make up for poor performance of, of those machines leads to a couple of different implications, right? So let, should we pull those threads, KJ, and see? Yeah, let's pull them. I, I'm really very interested. So it sounds to me like what you said is this OEE or this speed, this hours, this quality is 
if it's not performing at the level that they want it to be or where it should be, that Um, the traditional approach has been to spend more capital on more machines. Right. Okay. And you're saying the hidden thing that you're not saying, (laughs) that you're really saying in volume, is there's limitations in equipment that can be overcome. Exactly. And so I guess before we pull the string on this a little bit more, I would take that these limitations are the challenge, the status quo, it's the mindset to overcome because is that it? Exactly. I, so the word I would use for those is constraints. There's there's a constraint in the organization, whether it is a, a true constraint, you know, that the laws of physics and chemistry say you cannot break or whether there's an organizational constraint that's been applied, you know, below that. There are certain, you know, regulatory constraints for, for good reasons. We, we may want to limit the performance of an asset or a, or a factory for, for regulatory reasons. Um, and then there's organizational constraints that have been passed down, right? I've been in the room where, you know, you, you talk to a, a, an operator or you talk to a process engineer and you say, what's the fastest you've ever seen this, this piece of equipment run? And they'll say, well, you know, before Steve retired, he said, never, never turn the knob up past eight, you know, like, okay, well, I'm sure Steve had some good reasons for that, but like, is that constraint still valid today, right? What, what else has changed in, around the system that says, you know, don't turn the knob past eight is still, is still the right thing to do. So not every situation is as simple as just turning the knob up, but in many cases, there are constraints that have been accepted in the organization that can be challenged respectfully and objectively, but with, with data um, to understand a, what is it worth? You know, if we were to to break this constraint, is it is it worth challenging? And then, you know, what's that risk reward trade off? And and there's implications for for not only the company in terms of breaking those constraints and allowing those assets to perform at a higher level today. And there's implications in terms of their capital allocation, where they invest, their network of facilities. In many cases, if factory number one, you know, can't meet the demand from their customers, they'll they'll build a second factory or they'll or they'll outsource that additional volume to a to another supplier, um, and and they may have to you know raise their prices as a result. There's implications for us as consumers, right, in terms of the availability of the products that we want. You know, is is the shelf stocked when I need to replenish or not? The price that I have to pay, you know, because of the the inefficiencies that the manufacturer encounters. You know, that those those inefficiencies ultimately get passed on to us as as consumers, right? Um, there's implications for the workers in the factory, like. I've stood there, you know, on the shop floor and and watched a person, you know, pulling scrap out of a machine and un, unjamming a machine and and you know, it's hard work and it's repetitive work and it's it's certainly not satisfying work to have to, you know, to struggle through those those operational challenges every day and and then to have to come back and work Saturday because, you know, we had to add another shift because we didn't make our our production numbers for the week, you know, that that's a Saturday I I can't spend, you know, with my family, right? Which I understand is what has been happening only when we did that Fox News story, right? Did I really understand that these things were really happening? But it is a really, it is such a bigger story. Anyway, I cut you off, but. No, I I think that's exactly it. There's there's human implications to this. And many times the organizations either have accepted those as just, that's just how things work around here. That's just part of doing business. and And they're not willing to challenge them. That's one barrier to change. A second barrier to change is they don't have the information that they need in order to to, to know where to start, right? There's a hundred things we could fix today. Where do we start? Which is the best one to work on? Where's the value? Where's the return on investment? 
So giving people that that insight and that data to help support that decision making. And then the third barrier is, is just one of capability, right? If we know it matters and we know what to work on and we just can't solve the problem ourselves, that that's a challenge around capability and, and knowledge in the in the organization. And we've seen huge changes in the manufacturing workforce over the past few years with you know the post-COVID economy, people, you know, taking remote jobs rather than than having to, you know, drive an hour to the factory every day. You can just roll out of bed and, you know, put your t-shirt on and, and turn on Zoom. We've got a, a whole generation of of really capable operators and, and engineers who are now retiring, right? The, the whole generation of people with with decades of experience are, are starting to retire. And what happens to that knowledge, right? I think that was the that's the big surprise that I heard at all the, the trade shows I attended this year talking to manufacturers. They're really worried about, you know, knowledge retention in their organization as generation sort of leaves the workforce and people sort of, you know, are moving into different uh, post-COVID roles. So I think it's a real it's a real risk to address. So if we can get people to see that there's more opportunity there and understand those constraints can be challenged, if we can give them the data and the insights to help them know where to start and, and what to work on, and then we can build those capabilities to be effective at solving those technical problems, solving those organizational problems, that's how we can unlock that that hidden factory that's hiding in, in, in the existing assets. I love the hidden factory aspect that's hiding in this, right? Yeah. So interesting. So I have I have so many questions based on what you just said. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to start. Let's do so it. So you nailed down three constraints. One is just based on the laws of physics. Now, those things can't be changed, right? Sure. Okay, good. Number two, regulatory constraints. Yeah. That's very hard to change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like a small, slow moving boat to China. Huge, right. slow moving boat to China. Yeah. But then we have these organizational constraints that it seems to be what was successful before is held in place as fixed ideas today that don't allow new explorations of what can be done. Yep. That's what you're saying. Yeah, right? I can give you, you know, war stories for, for days here. But let me let me pick out a couple. Give me an example. Like, like, yeah, let's like, um, I hate to use the phrase dumb it down, but let's just make it a little more real for sure. our listeners, right? Give sure. me like, without saying names, give me a real like case example of this. Absolutely. So, so this is one just from last summer. One of our clients, chemical manufacturer, they make a commodity chemical. So, um, you know, margins are very important, right? Um, they, they can't control the price. They can just control how efficiently they, they make the, the chemical. There's a big reactor in the desert in Texas uh, that basically, you know, it's a continuous, continuous process. So they're, they're pumping, you know, chemicals through 24 hours a day. And the basic process is they have a big reactor. They pump in the, the feedstock. There's a chemical reaction, and and then they and then they filter and and refine the, the product, you know, to to go off to their their customers. And what happens in that reactor? It's an exothermic reaction, so there's a lot of heat produced in that reaction, and they're balancing the feed of oxygen and and raw materials and intermediary materials to manage that chemical reaction. They felt that they were at the limit of of how that reactor could could perform, and so they actually brought in um, NASA to do some analysis and do some modeling and help them improve the control logic of, of the oxygen feed in sort of the reactor, right? NASA has a, has a history of, of uh, you know, demonstrated expertise in not letting things go boom at the wrong time, right? Uh. So they brought in NASA to help them control that and, and maintain safety. Now, when we started to work with that company, we came in with a, you know, constraint-free view of, well, what are the laws of physics and chemistry say, you know, governs this, this reaction and, and the, the capability of the assets? And the engineers that were working on the oxygen control system had taken as as a as a constraint around the system 
what cooling capacity was available to, to basically pump water around the outside of the reactor and, and keep it cool. And when, when we started to challenge that, as unsexy as manufacturing can be, you know, cooling water systems are even less sexy, right? So you can imagine why <laughs> the, the, the NASA scientists weren't interested in looking at the, the cooling water pumps. But what we found was that the cooling system, the work that they did with NASA found a, a 3% improvement in the output from the reactor. In a continuous co- a commodity chemical and, you know, business, 3% improvement is great, right? We'll take that to the bank every day because okay. the margins are very thin. As I said, it's a commodity product. So you have no control over the price. You just have to try to optimize your, your production. So 3% felt like a win. When we looked at the entire system, including that cooling water system, we found that there was actually 30% capacity available by you know jacking up the, the flow rate of the cooling system, cooling down the reactor. You can feed in a lot more oxygen, a lot more raw material without elevating the risk of, of an explosion or a bad, a bad reaction. So Again, that that's an example of of a constraint where, you know, w- the the company knew it was important. They they had brought in the experts to help them with that. They certainly had a laser focus on on making improvements. Unfortunately, it was a laser and not a flashbulb, and they weren't looking at in the entire system of where there might be other hidden opportunity in the very unsexy you know cooling water system that that unlocked even more. Capability. How much more did it unlock? Did you say? And I just didn't hear it. So. In in theory, we found thirty percent uh, potential. Thirty. Yep, and they were able to to realize about half of that, about fifteen or sixteen percent. So again, you know, a very very big improvement. And again, we're not we're not talking about adding more equipment, right? We're not talking about investing in additional equipment. It's just changing the the operating conditions to 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 run at that higher at that higher rate. Well, fifteen percent, it's huge, <laughs> right? And so, what was their response to this? I, I think I think OMG. Pretty much OMG. I think there was uh, there was a look of surprise. Um, there was a little bit of face palm that like maybe there was a mistake in in terms of scoping the analysis and excluding that that cooling water system from from scope. But I think generally people get excited that they've now found a new way to like where else where else can we find another fifteen or thirty percent? Right? They're, they're they get energized by that. Like, what are all the other places in our organization where we've accepted a constraint about what's possible. Let's go turn over some more rocks and, and see what we find. And that, that's such a, a positive experience to have people who, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of a cringe of like, oh, I wish I had found that myself. But, but then like, oh, great, where, where, where else can we go look and find similar value? Yeah, I bet they would get addicted to that if I were them. Sure. Right. Once you find that level of improvement, right? So mm-hmm. the potentiality was 30%. The actual mm-hmm. of what they actually got or did or Whatever was fifteen percent. I'm sure there's reasons for that, right? And it's but it's still five times more than they than they could have gotten from the the NASA control logic project, right? And so yeah, you know, both are valuable. I, I don't want to sound dismissive. I think it's just a question of in a world of limited time, limited resources, are you really focused on the the, the biggest prize and, and going after that, right? Right. The manufacturing industry used to be huge in America decades ago, right? I know some manufacturing has been coming back, but you know, how big is the manufacturing industry overall in the US today? The the last data that I saw was it's it's around 10% plus or minus, right? If you measure it in terms of the number of jobs in the US um, or the 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 sort of GDP, the size of of the manufacturing, it's you know, it's 10% plus or minus. Got it. And so 
What does that make? The number of people that work in manufacturing, what is that, 10% of our workforce? Yes. So, Roughly? you know, what is that? It's, it's, it's still, if we're, if we're a country of, you know, 300 million people, it's still millions of people that are, that are engaged in that, right? Still millions of people. I, you yep. know, I just look at these types of efficiencies can create so many more jobs. And I don't know if there's a formula. I'm sure it is for every business or industry or whatever. But if you're increasing your efficiency, right, and your output by 15, 18%, right, mm-hmm. what does that equate to in terms of jobs and less overtime and having letting people like have a life? And have you seen anything like that? Yeah, I think in terms of how companies can monetize those those opportunities that they find, I think I think we've seen them happen in a couple of ways, right? The first one is that suddenly those factories can be much more cost competitive, right? And so you can start to bring mm. volume of of manufacturing that has previously been sent, you know, out offshore, out, outside of the US, you can start to bring that stuff onshore because we can now produce the same stuff at, you know, 15, 20% lower cost and therefore we can bring more more volume back home. Number two is that the, the number of physical sites that you need to operate to, to produce that same amount of stuff can shrink, right? We have, a, we have a client in Europe who looked at their plastic waste and how much waste they were producing in their, in their process. And in a matter of, of months, they kept thousands of metric tons of plastic out, out of their landfill because they were able to solve some of these waste, waste problems. So huge implication, wow. not, not only in terms of the streams of waste that we're producing, but the physical area that we need to commit to that, you know, the, how much of our of our world is, is taken up by factories, right? You, what a story. Exactly. Right. So you don't need as many, you don't need as many industrial sites that opens up space for development of, of housing uh, or just green space in the world. Green space, right? with, more with, trees. I mean, development of housing is great. Yes, we have yep. a, you know, higher population, but also yep. green space, right? Yep. Exactly. Yes, less contamination. Those stories are humongous. Right. Well, I'm just really curious, like what's missing that the current software doesn't allow them to see these games? Like, is it software? Is it legacy software? Is it, you said in the past it was built by data scientists, right? What I, what I think's happened is actually the pendulum has, has swung too far too fast. And what I mean by that is we went from, from an era, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago where everyone wanted more data. You know, we, we hooked up sensors to everything we could find. You know, we wanted to put, um, you know, streaming data from all the different, you know, pumps and flow meters and, and you know, sensors and temperature probes and everything we could, right? We, we said, we need more data. So, so we went out and we got more data. And then we found that, that most manufacturers either didn't know how to manage it, didn't know how to process it, and more importantly, didn't know how to activate that data to allow everyone in the organization to, to not only, like, see the insights, but, but to take the right action on them. And so I think there's, there's, we need to swing the pendulum back a little bit the other way by trying not to be distracted by the really sexy, flashy use cases around, you know, chat TPT and Dolly and all this sort of generative stuff that's hot right now, and just focus on how can we activate the data that we have today so that everyone in the manufacturing organization can use use it in their jobs. You're talking about this like consumer grade user experience, like exactly. for, for data, that right? Exactly. In, in the manufacturing world. Absolutely. I think I think that's you nailed it, KJ. And that, that's sort of a a tagline that we've been using at at Chartwell Digital is is to provide 
industrial grade analytics with a consumer grade user experience. And, and I'll give you another really specific example. I visited a customer in, in Austria who showed us another piece of software. I, I will protect the innocent and not name the name <laughs> of, of our competitor. So the gentleman I was meeting with, um, he, he ran their, their process engineering organization at a very successful uh, chemical manufacturer in Austria. You know, he's a PhD engineer. He worked his way up from the shop floor all the way up through the leadership team. So he knew his industry. He knew his business really, really well. And he was really excited to show us a feature in, in the software that they were using. And we, we sat at his desk together, you know, for a, a painfully long kind of three or four minutes as he struggled to find the right button, you know, to, to sort of show us th this insight that he wanted to show us in the system. And I, and I kept thinking like, this guy has the time, right? He has the education, he has the motivation, he has the background, and he's still struggling to make the machine sort of spit out the idea that he wants to show us. And so if you take that example and look across a very diverse workforce in manufacturing, people with all different education levels, different levels of what I would call data literacy, it's not fair to just put a chart in front of someone and assume that they know how to read the chart, that they know what conclusions to draw from it, that they know what to do about it once they've read it. And so our approach is to bring the insights to the user, right? Don't just show me a, a, an overwhelming chart of lines and dashes and columns. You know, put, put a box that says, here's the text, what to do. This is what you can see in the chart. This is what to do about it, right? And of course, for the more advanced user or the engineer or the person who has that very high level of data literacy, you can always drill down. You can always double click and drill in and look and, and explore the data in more detail. But I think we, could, we can do a lot to make simple design changes to the software that really provide a, a consumer grade experience that then, then activate all that investment that the company's made in technology. Let your people use it. Let them get value from it. Yes. That's the biggest mantra today, right? Mm -hmm. It's like really getting the value out of the technology. I mean, that's like across the board. Absolutely. I mean, no, nothing drives a CFO crazier than seeing that they've just written a check for a million bucks of digital transformation and then nobody's freaking using it, right? That, that <laughs> no. is so overwhelming. It really pisses them off. It yep. really does. Yeah. So how do you envision, like with this innovation mm -hmm. in data, it is an innovation in data, wouldn't you sure. say? Yeah. How do you envision this, like, helping the manufacturing industry, like, across the world? It sounds like you're global, right? I mean, I was yeah. focusing on the U.S., right? But obviously, diapers and tissues and cereal and <laughs> things and chemicals is, like, a global thing. Like, needing less space, more efficiency, more jobs is a universal problem. Where do you see this? impacting the manufacturing? Like, what's your prediction? What's your hope? My hope is that we see, as a society, we see the importance of the manufacturing sector, and that becomes a, a magnet for investment and talent, right? I think that's my, that's my broad prediction, is that people are going to get exhausted by fintech and crypto and, and all this stuff that has been, you know, very sort of sexy over the past, you know, five or 10 years. And we start to realize that, we have a lot more to achieve in in good old fashioned atoms, not not bits, right? And so that so that's sort of my macro prediction is we'll start to see that swing in where the money's going, where the talent is going over over the next you know maybe two to eight years. A more kind of specific prediction is that we'll start to see technology providers acknowledging that the needs of manufacturing are much more straightforward than they may hope or they may want that. 
We don't need to be talking about neural networks and we don't need to, to be talking about quantum mechanics in, in, in the calculations. Let's just make sure that the information we put in front of that shift supervisor, you know, where it's two o'clock in the morning and the pump is broken and the gal or, or guy just needs to know what's the best decision for me to make today to keep everyone safe, you know, keep my customers happy, keep my boss happy. How, how can we empower that person to make better decisions in that role? And that is a challenge that I really hope my peers in manu- the manufacturing technology sector can embrace is, is that we're doing this, you know, t- to help the people on the floor, wearing the hard hat, wearing the steel-toed shoes. How can we help that person be more effective in their role? And it doesn't take, you know, generative AI to, to do that. We, we, can, we can use much more straightforward approaches, but we can build those systems with that person and their interests in mind. I love that. And mic drop, there's value in good old-fashioned Adam's not bites Absolutely. Boom. Okay, so... We've geeked out on manufacturing, which I absolutely love, but you got to tell me about you and tell me about better milk pancakes and what sure. are your crazy passions besides that? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful to be a, a dad to, to two awesome girls and a, and a husband to an awesome mom. As you said, we live in the Boston area and um, you know we spend a ton of time outside together as a family. Uh, my wife's passion is is food security. So she really helps organizations in our community with Gardens, food rescue, uh, composting, native plants. She's just very focused on food security and the natural environment that, that we live in. You know, when I get a chance to to get some some time away, I'd, I'd like to be, you know, climbing a mountain, skiing down it, uh, you know, mountain biking with my with my kids uh, on the bike on the beach in the water. Just anything outside and exploring is is fun. We just did a, a camping trip for for Father's Day weekend with with my two girls, which was which was a blast, and got to explore one of the state parks up in New Hampshire and, and see some, see some cool stuff out there. Um, and then cooking, you know, food, food is a big part of, of how we connect as a society, how we connect as a family. I hear from reputable sources in my family that, that my buttermilk pancakes are, are better than the diner down the street. So I, I, I'm very proud to have that accolade. I love that. Well, I grew up in a household of all girls. So hats off to dads that have households of all girls. Yes. And dad also made pancakes every weekend. So the fact that you are a buttermilk pancake aficionado is like awesome. <laughs> That's right. And we've, and we've applied the same uh, continuous improvement method to the, uh, to the recipe. <laughs> it's evolved over the years and I'm sure it could get better, but you know, we've, we've definitely taken away some of those constraints in the pancake recipe over the years. So. That's awesome. So what's like the key thing for like a successful buttermilk pancake? I would say the number one tip I would pass along is, well, A, A has to have buttermilk. You need that acid in there to activate the little air bubbles and make it fluffy. But the number one thing I would say is wait. So mix the, mix the batter and then let it sit for like three, four or five minutes and let it, let it sort of react and, and get fluffy and bubbly. It's not going to go bad on your kitchen counter for, for three minutes, but let, let that chemical reaction happen. Let it get nice and puffy and bubbly. And then when you pour it on the griddle, that's where you'll see the, the magic happen. That's such an engineering approach. I love it. <laughs> and what do you put on your buttermilk pancakes? You put butter and maple syrup, or are you like topping? I, we we sometimes make um like a like a berry sauce. So if we have some some berries in the fridge that are kind of past their prime, reduce those down to make like a little bit of a raspberry sauce or a blueberry sauce on top. 
if it's not, you know, fresh fruit season, then we'll just stick with good old fashioned uh, maple syrup. And my and my girls like to make um, fresh whipped cream while I'm cooking. So that's the other nice. thing. Nice, nice, nice. Awesome. Okay, so give me like an elevator pitch on Chartwell Digital and tell people how to get a hold of you. Okay. Um, so, so Chartwell Digital provides web-based applications for manufacturers to help them improve the cash flow from their existing assets. We are affiliated. We're a sister, sister company with Chartwell Consulting. So we can provide a sort of a joint offering of in-person consulting services, you know, direct support, kind of boots on the ground from the consulting team. And then the digital team provides analytics, projects, custom application development, and then subscription offerings that our clients can use in between the the consulting projects that they engage with. So it's sort of a one-stop shop for consulting support and subscription products. I'm based here in Boston, and you can get me at startwelldigital.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, that's where I met you, on LinkedIn. Absolutely. Absolutely love that you say that you help unlock the cash flow to their assets. You know, that's a big thing in the media right now. It used to be mm-hmm. saving, 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 but now it's all about revenue growth and cash flow. And that's because readership, listenership, viewership is focused on that. So well done to you. Great. Thanks so much. I really enjoy this a lot, opening up the door and exploring manufacturing. I just started to really understand it, not only talking to you, but, you know, recent developments and you know, learning about my COO and, you know, the fact that toilet paper is now so very important. That's right. (laughs) Who would would have known, right? (laughs) Who would have known? Thanks very much. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed, go tell someone about this podcast and go tell people to disrupt their markets with a tidbit from this show. Thanks for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This advice is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal healthcare or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal issue or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links. Do not create an agency client relationship between Joto PR and the user.